and welcome to Spawned, a common sense and hopefully fun discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase. And I'm Liz Gumbiner. We're the co-founders of CoolMomPix.com. And today we have a spectacular guest. I am not exaggerating. We're going to be talking to author Peggy Orenstein about her new New York Times bestselling book, Boys and Sex. This should be an amazing discussion. I am so excited. I've got this book in my bag. I've been walking around with it for days, so I'm very thrilled to be talking to her. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week, and we'll be right back to talk with Peggy after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Ergo Pouch, the award-winning sleep suit bag for babies. If you're not familiar with this parent-favorite product, it's a baby and toddler sleeping bag that converts easily into a sleep suit with legs just by adjusting the four-way zippers. That means nighttime diaper changes are less likely to wake the baby, and we all know how valuable that is. Oh, yes, we do. Ergo Pouch sleep suit bags are made from organic cotton, so it's not just friendly to a baby's sensitive skin, but the natural fibers encourage heat to release to help your baby maintain a consistent body temperature. When it's in sleep suit mode, it's perfect for little nighttime wrigglers who like more leg freedom or for toddlers transitioning from a crib to their first big kid bed. And the 20 different colors of patterns are absolutely modern and beautiful. Seriously, look at the pictures on the site at ergopouch.com. They're really cute. Those babies are so cute. Ah. Speaking of which, it does make a great baby shower gift. Or hey, a gift for yourself if you have a little one and actually like getting a little more sleep in your life, too. And we've got an exclusive discount code. Yay! Just for Spawned listeners. Visit ergopouch.com and use code C-M-P-X-E-R-GO-POUCH-30. Let me say that again. That's C-M-P-X-E-R-GO-POUCH-30. That's all one word. And you'll save 30% off your Ergo Pouch purchase through the end of February 2020. Visit ergopouch.com. So if you don't know Peggy Orenstein's work, she's best known as the New York Times bestselling author of Girls and Sex, Cinderella Ate My Daughter, which we all still quote all the time. I know I hear it from you, Liz. I quote it. All the time. All the time. (laughs) Like, there's no way our frequent listeners do not know Peggy Orenstein, mainly because of Cinderella Ate My Daughter. But she also wrote Waiting for Daisy, Flux, Schoolgirls, which my mom still uses as an educator. Just, she's amazing. She's also a contributing writer to the New York Times magazine and Afar magazine with her columns in the Washington Post, Slate, New York, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, just, you know, a few little publications you might have heard of. And she happens to be the mom of one daughter, which is in part why we are so interested in her brand new book, Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity, which is already a New York Times bestseller. And it's been called a must-read by publications from Time to New York Magazine, Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, Apple Books, and now Cool Mom Picks. So (laughs) welcome, Peggy. (laughs) Welcome, Peggy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, I'm so so excited. Yeah, you can tell. We're just super excited. We're jumping the gun here because (laughs) so I have a 13-year-old son and, you know, I got your book a couple of weeks ago. And in that period of time, 
time, he actually turned into a teenager magically on his birthday. Mm. Funny how that works. And we were watching <laughs> Shrill together, season two of Shrill. Mm. And I like to watch those shows, even though they may not seem to be kid appropriate per se, because I think they open up great conversations, which they did. And we were talking about everything from oral sex to orgasms to all these things that we need to be talking about with our kids. And I know in your book, kids are getting them in so many different places now. So I'm starting off strong and saying raising a teen boy, having those conversations is a big deal. And not many people are talking about it. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely one of the things that I found in talking to boys was that they had very little messaging or discussions with their parents. And yeah, I mean, what you've just pointed out something so important, which is that kids grow up in a really gigantic media culture that is saturated with messages about sex, many of which are really bad. Let's just say bad, not <laughs> true. But so much of what they see in mainstream media and of course in pornography is just over and over this idea of male sexual entitlement and female sexual availability. So to be able to have a moment when you're watching something or listening to something, whether it's something that is really interesting and complex and nuanced like shrill, or whether it's something that's just, you know, whatever they're listening to on their Spotify or the video game they're playing or whatever, to use that as a jumping off point for some of these conversations is crucial. And if we don't, you know, the media educates our kids for us. Yeah, about <laughs> pretty much anything, not just sex and boys. But right, yeah, right, I mean, parents right. have to parent. <laughs> like, the TV is yeah. not your parent. Well, he was watching, and she had an orgasm, and he goes, wait, girls can do that? And I looked at him, and I said, clearly, I have done you wrong. I wrote a book about sex. I am slacking. How, how long do you have, son? Let's go. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, that perspective, guys, I mean, we're, like, jumping over everything and getting right here, but it was so interesting to talk to guys about their perspective on female pleasure because they are pretty distorted. <laughs> they are not walking into those early sexual experiences with accuracy at all. Oh, mm. and I really want to get to more about that because you really cover things like porn and media and misinformation. Yeah. And I, there's just, oh, it's so rich and so good. And I don't even have boys and I am really fascinated. But you have girls who might interact with boys at some point. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So well-educated so kids of all genders are valuable to all of us. Yes. So let me just go back for a second because I know you talk about in the intro about how you made the move from writing about girls, which is mostly what you've covered, to boys in part because you were getting reader feedback. And we've heard that too from our listeners and our readers on Cool Mom Picks. They're like, do more about boys. Like, what are you hearing these days from parents? Do you think they're getting enough information about boys and sexuality? Well, you know, I'm trying to fill the gap. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, that was the whole thing was I, I was I was out there and I was talking about girls and sex and parents kept saying, and girls and boys too, would say, what about boys? And I think, oh, not really my job. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, the more I realized that nobody really was talking to boys in a new era where we have a whole new set of expectations plus a whole new set of pressures about sex, about intimacy, about masculinity, about gender dynamics. And so I kind of started, I just started talking to guys between the ages of 16 and 22-ish and, you know, listening to what they had to say. And then the Me Too allegations and the Me Too movement took off and suddenly we had this mandate to reduce sexual violence and it was apparent just how broad and deep that behavior went. But it also, I thought, really provided this opportunity 
And parents suddenly really recognized that we needed to engage young men, you know, in a positive way about what they were thinking around sex and relationships and intimacy and gender and masculinity, because we need them to make their best possible choices. And so in the book, how many boys did you talk to? And just I'm curious kind of about the methodology, like how you find them and, and, you know, how long you spend with them. I walked down the street with a sign. No, I. I, uh, (laughs) Sorry. I talked to uh, over 100 guys, and they were between 16 and 22. And like the girl book, I went for parody. So they are guys who were either college-bound or in college. But beyond that, I cast my net pretty broadly. They were from small towns, big cities, all across the country, different sexual orientations, different gender identities, different ethnicities, different religions. And I found them through, I have a pretty broad network at this point, through various teachers and academics and colleges that where I visited and where I worked for the girl books. So actually finding boys was surprisingly less hard in a way than finding girls. And I've thought about this a lot because I don't know if it was because I was a known quantity by that point, or I felt like people are more maybe protective of their girls talking about issues around sex. And with boys, I felt like parents were giving me their son's emails. They were giving me their phone numbers. Boys were, I, I just, I felt sort of like maybe people were hoping that I wouldn't just talk to their sons, but that I would educate them as mm. well. Wow. That's interesting. That's fascinating. And I got the sense from the book that the boys also were like enthusiastic to talk to you. It wasn't like sitting down to talk to the health teacher. Yeah. Like they seemed to really be happy that someone wanted to hear what they had to say. I think that was the biggest surprise of the book was I was really worried when I went into it. My other big fear and resistance was that I'd have entire transcripts that existed of, uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they don't, <laughs> boys don't have a reputation for talking, but I was wrong. And they really did want to talk. And what was interesting about them was that the guys were such insightful narrators of their own experience. Hmm. Like they, they really were thinking about things. And I realized that the fact is we really rarely give boys the space to examine their interior lives and speak really honestly from the heart. So I think the fact that I was offering them that in a way that was non-judgmental and curious and in partnership saying, I want to bring your voice and your perspective forward. It's important. Really allowed them to open up. Let's talk a little more about that because I agree with you. You know, girls and women, we're taught to value communication and connectivity. And I don't think it's that boys don't do it or don't have that inner dialogue that you were talking about or are insightful about their own experience. But it seems to be that it's more acceptable for women and for girls to do that. And so did you find that boys maybe, you know, suffer from a lack of that societal expectation? around talking. I know there's a lot of like sort of the bro code or the boy code yeah. that is still perpetuated even now. I say even now, but it feels like it shouldn't be, but it is. It's still yeah. going strong. You know, in a way, we shouldn't really be surprised. I, certainly girls and women live with a lot of contradictions between old assumptions and new expectations, right? You know, I mean, that's yeah. really what my yeah. work for the last 25 years was about. So to find that boys who are even less addressed have some of those same conflicts shouldn't blow anybody away, but yet it does. And on one hand, you know, the guys that I spoke with, sure, I mean, they saw girls as deserving of their place in the classroom and in leadership and professional and educational opportunities. They had female friends. They had gay male friends. But on the other hand, when I would ask them, what's the ideal guy? It was like they were channeling 1955. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It was all about dominance, aggression, athleticism, wealth, sexual conquest, and really emotional suppression. And so many guys, whether they were 
were on the more progressive end of the spectrum, whether they identified as feminists, whether they were more politically to the right, whatever, they would talk about having built a wall inside of them sometime around middle school where their real authentic feelings had to be hidden. And all they were allowed, as one guy said, was happiness and anger. Or they would say, I trained myself not to feel. And oh, yeah, I just got chills. That's painful. It's really painful. And so when you were asking the impact, well, of course that has an impact, whether it's that we know that guys who cling to those rigid norms are more likely not only to harass and assault and bully, but to themselves be the victims of violence, to binge drink, to be in car accidents, to be depressed, to be lonely, to die of suicide. I mean, it has a huge cost. But separate from that, I thought a lot about, especially since the book's been published and I've been going around and talking about it, how much the struggle with emotional vulnerability or somebody, a, a male therapist said I should call it emotional accessibility because guys can hear that more, hmm. is, is at the heart of this book. And wrestling with it, rejecting it, denying it, capitulating to it, embracing it, trying to find your way to it. You know, whether they were talking about sex, whether they were talking about porn, whether they were talking about consent, that was really at the heart of it. And this idea that when you disconnect people from their capacity for vulnerability, it's not only disconnecting them from a fundamental human trait, but, you know, Brene Brown says that vulnerability is the secret sauce that holds relationships together. So you're cutting boys off Mm -hmm. from a reduced capacity to have the kinds of mutually gratifying relationships that we want for them. And that does hurt them. And it also hurts their future romantic partners. I'm wondering, since you talk to so many different kinds of, I want to say kids, but not kids, young men, how different this all is when we're talking about young men of different races or different cultural backgrounds? Do you find there are differences in masculine norms or expectations? expectations about sex and relationships? Or do you feel like that kind of gets homogenized, you know, as an American perspective? Yeah, there are certainly similarities. And I write about what's similar among groups, but also there were some really important differences. And I'm really glad you asked that question. And I have to say that the guys of color that I talked to were going to school at predominantly white institutions. That may not have been what their neighborhood looked like back home, but that was their educational experience. And that is the educational experience of most boys of color in college, unless they go to particular HBCU, yeah. yeah. So I was really interested in looking at the ways that African-American guys and Asian-American guys were sort of flip sides of the same coin with white masculinity as kind of controlling the toss. So white masculinity tended to be viewed by young people as sort of neutral. And then there was projected onto African-American guys a sort of hypersexuality. They could be, you know, like the coolest guy in the room, but that would flip really fast to being seen as the most predatory guy in the room. And they carried a lot of psychological stress around that. So just in a small way, one of the guys said to me, a guy named Emmett said, I'm not going to go party with a bunch of drunk white kids because anything can happen. And if I'm the only black guy in the room, I'm the only black guy in the room. And there was just so much in that statement. Wow. I know, right? On the other side, Asian guys had projected onto them ideas around emasculation and asexuality, which caused its own kind of stress. One of the guys said to me, um... He had matched with a girl on Tinder and he was going back and forth. And and those swipe apps are full of sexual racism. And they went back and forth. And then she said, you know, um, we could be friends, but no offense. I don't date Asian guys. Uh. And he just looked at me. How is that no offense? (sighs) How is that no offense? And so looking at it, it was really interesting because the kids that I spoke with, all of them were so, they're a new generation. They're very conscious. They're very social justice oriented. They're very aware of racial politics. And yet they so often left that at the door and defaulted into damaging stereotypes and biases when they went into their social interactions. And that was really weighing heavily. And 
affecting the approach of guys of color. That's fascinating. And, you know, I'm biracial. I'm an Asian woman. So I've heard particularly the Asian male stereotypes. And it's amazing how that continues to be perpetuated. Um, Let's transition and talk about something that I found super disturbing. I know Liz did as well. And just the violent nature of how boys were describing sex. Yeah. You know, and like I slammed her. Like, where is this coming from? You know, as parents, I'm curious to know, like I have an older daughter who's 16. um, And so we have a different kind of relationship when it comes to talking about sex than I do with my son in a way. So are there things that parents can be listening to? Or is it things that are shared on social media that we need to look out for? Where are those things coming from? And how can we, I don't want to say intervene, but how can we address these things? Give them a lens. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere, right? Do you listen to the music that your son listens to? Do you know what the porn is that he's watching? I mean, the messages of that aggressiveness is so constant in the culture. And in locker rooms, we talk about the locker room talk a lot of that, it's it's obviously not about sex per se. It's about bonding as heterosexual guys over control of women's bodies and bragging about that. So mm. yeah, it's, I slammed her. I hit that. I tapped that. I banged. I hammered. I, it's like they went to a construction site, right? <laughs> it's not like they engaged in an act of intimacy. And this is their way of asserting kind of alpha male dominance yeah, in a peer group. Exactly. And it was not something that guys necessarily felt good about. And I was really conscious of the guys who were listening to that and going, ew, I am not okay with how you're talking about my female friends. You know, what do you do with that? So one of the guys, um, Cole, who was a senior in high school, was telling me about how he and another friend when they were sophomores had spoken out against a boy who was saying something, you know, graphic and despicable about one of their female friends and they got mocked. Mm. So the next time something came up, Cole didn't say anything, but his friend continued to say something. And he said, I watched while the more he stepped up and the more I stepped back, you know, the other guys stopped listening to him and he was spending all his social capital. And I was sitting there with buckets of it left and I wasn't spending any of it. And Oof. he said, and I, you know, I don't know what to do. And he looked at me and said, I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and my friends, but how do I make it so I don't have to choose? I thought about that so much because even if you think, oh, well, my son would never, your son is going to be the guy in the room. And it's in that silence. You know, this is what Michael Thompson, who's a psychologist, says that it's in that silence in the face of cruelty and misogyny where boys learn to become men. And so what they don't say, what they can't say, what they won't say is just as important as what they do say. And what we can do as parents, you know, whether it's talking to their coaches and bringing in a program like Coaching Boys into Men, which is a really great program for disrupting that kind of behavior or making gender dynamics visible to them as parents or whatever it is, thinking about how you can support your son in deflecting or changing or interrupting some of that behavior is super important even if he's not himself engaging in it. You know what? Actually, I have some hope reading in the book how a lot of boys didn't feel good about this. As you mentioned, like they're saying these things, but deep down they know it's wrong and they don't want to be like that. So that's encouraging to me. Yeah. And it's interesting. So uh, last week when you were on Morning Joe, I called out to you on Twitter because I was so angry that you were asked. Oh, was that you? That was me. That was on Mom 101 on my personal Oh, yeah. I I am. Wasn't that annoying? I was, that was so so upsetting, but I was so shocked by it. 
I couldn't even function. So for our listeners who did not catch her on Morning Joe, she was called out by one of the commentators or, or she was asked whether boys in single parent households were not getting healthy information about sexuality. And I, my jaw dropped. I went right to Twitter. I was so angry. And you were gracious and you deflected the question. But I would love if you can answer it properly here. Like, yeah. why aren't kids getting healthy information about sexuality? And does single or solo parenthood no. have anything to do with it? <laughs> Thank you. Boom. That's it. Nope. That's it. (laughs) There's a question buried in that question. I mean, there's always these questions like that where you get asked. I mean, in a really high pressure situation, like you're on live TV and you just kind of go, what? And because I can't (laughs) think fast enough, sometimes I just deflect it as fast as possible so that I can, you know, stay on my message. But if I were to answer that question more thoughtfully, obviously lots of dual parent households are dropping the ball all over the place. And lots of single parent households are doing a magnificent job on all these issues. It's ridiculous. But buried in that question is about elitism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I did see was that guys in more elite contexts, like guys who went to fancy colleges, Uh, more elite schools tended to assume and insist against all evidence that it was the less elite guys who were the problem. We know that's not true. And I do a whole thing in the book of like a four month period where guys at Harvard, Princeton, Amherst, a whole bunch of like the uber elite schools got caught in sexual misconduct cases. Stanford, (laughs) obviously. Well, in one scene in the book, I am at a freshman pregame as one often is in middle age because that's not awkward. (laughs) And I'm there really just writing about hookup culture. But these guys think I'm there writing about assault. And it's an elite college in California. And we start talking about that and they go, well, you know, it's really it's those guys at the state schools who do that stuff. And I said, really? Because Brock Turner was at Stanford. And they just kind of stopped and then they went, oh, but he wasn't there on merit. He was an athlete. So, <gasps> wow. Yeah. Oh right? my gosh. Wow. And that's why in a way it was really important to me to write about these guys who were in college and who were college bound and had these at least educationally more elite paths to power because they think it's not them. And that's mm. just not true. Uh, man, I mean, there's so much to say here. I want to talk about some of the other topics, like the hookup culture. You know, you talk about rape and how no one ever thinks they're a rapist. But can we talk about where parents at this juncture, all I can think about is what I do, which is all the time say, you know, in porn, that's not how it really is. I yeah. mean, my son's 13. So, you know, I might speak differently to my 16 year old, but I'm all the time pointing out those messages. I was thankful for the conversation we had with Shrill because it opened up yeah. you know, so many things, but most parents aren't doing that. What is, what, why? Is it because we're uncomfortable with our own sexuality? You know, what's happening? Where is the breakdown happening? Well, nobody talked to us. I mean, we have a history in this country of a culture of silence around all topics relating to sex and intimacy. And I don't think things were better necessarily in the past, but I do think that we no longer have that luxury of silence and what has changed is really the kids' access to both mainstream media and pornography, and that they are growing up just steeped in commodified transactional sexual imagery that presents really unhealthy ideas about what sex is, that, you know, detached, disengaged behavior, disposable partners, that that's the ideal, that, you know, sex is something men do to women. You know, whether you're looking at video games or music or TV or music videos or whatever, it doesn't matter. And yes, 
just pornography, but really across the board. As one guy said to me, I think music has a big impact. Like you're driving around your car with your friends and you're hearing some version of fuck that bitch and leave her two, four, six, ten times a day. You know, it's going to affect your mindset. So when we as parents, we have this weird you know, like divide where we think somehow our kids can grow up exposed to all of that stuff over and over and over and over, but we don't have to have any discussion with them about what a healthy, connected sexual experience or relationship should look like or sound like or feel like. It's crackers, frankly. Mm. I think that's the technical term for it. Crackers. The (laughs) pornography chapter is compelling and terrifying. And one of the things you wrote that really kind of gave me chills was that today's children are guinea pigs in a massive porn experiment. They are. When you think about it that way, it's shocking. And Mm -hmm. you also wrote that it's kind of the new sex ed, which also makes you really think like, whoa, we got to get up on this early and before they learn stuff from porn, right? Exactly. It is the default. So what's the best thing that parents can do? Like, what can we say about porn that's helpful and actually might be impactful? Well, you know, one of the things that I wanted out of this chapter was to be able to lay it out in a way that parents could read, but also that guys could read because the boys that I talked to, they weren't going like, yay, porn, this is great. You know, they had a lot of questions themselves about its impact on them, about its impact on how they saw partners, about its impact on how they saw their own bodies. And yeah, some of them would say things like, well, you know, I know the difference between fantasy and reality. But really, like, what did that mean? Because they didn't have the personal experience or context Mm. to know what was real, what should be real. And also, that's not how media works. The way that media works, and this is, I think, a really even beyond the specifics of the porn conversation and talking about what's real, what's not real, what's missing from those images The way media works is that it affects and shapes our thoughts, our beliefs, and our behaviors, even when we think it doesn't, and especially when we think it doesn't. You know, that's why Russians use the media to undermine our democracy. Mm -hmm. I swear I was just thinking that. Like, the way we talk to our kids now about media literacy and propaganda and critical thinking when it comes to the media and the news in general, it sounds like we have to talk about that when it comes to pornography, looking at it with a critical eye. Yes, I never thought about that. I think that we have done a much better job around media literacy and critical eye with girls. Because way back when I was writing school girls or way back in the 90s, before this whole media thing, it was big enough then, but before the internet and everything, we recognized that the messages that girls are bombarded with from the media, everybody knows this, are harmful, right? Everybody knows that. Regardless of your political beliefs, everything, that is across the board, we know that. And we are trying to arm our girls all the time with the critical thinking skills that will reduce the impact of those messages as much as we can. But boys are swimming in the same stew. Sometimes I think it's even turned up higher. And nobody is talking to them about the impact of those messages about masculinity, about femininity, about sex, about gender, you know, all of that stuff. Nobody's talking about the impact of those images on them. I agree with that because I'm in a house with three girls and one boy. And, you know, like I said, my oldest is almost 16, has been in a relationship and we've talked extensively about it. And also she is in a space where, you know, she's very aware of consent. She talks about it with her peers. They feel very informed. Yeah. And then I look at my son who plays ice hockey and who plays a lot of sports. You know, my oldest does theater and dance, and it's a different community that he is a part of. And I'm divorced. Uh, He has a stepdad and doesn't see his dad as much. And I don't think that there is a lot happening in terms of what's being discussed. So I do feel like it falls on me to talk about those things. But I I can see even in my own self 
that I haven't been probably as forthright with some of the information that I know I was talking to my daughter about at the same age. Well, you know, I, I think especially if a parent isn't in a child's life or something, there's going to be somebody else who fills that role, which is great. Or you just may want that. I have been the cool aunt for my older nieces and nephews over the years and been the person who talked to them. But I realized at a certain point, especially when I started doing this book, I thought, oh my gosh, I talk to my nieces all the time about these issues. I don't talk to my nephews. Not in the same way. And I've really worked to sort of slowly move that conversation with them into a more intimate and honest range. And it has taken some years of back and forth, I think, but I really think that I'm getting there with them too now. So I want to talk to you about LGBTQ kids. Yeah. I was really glad that you covered this in your book because I think most books about boys and sex are very heteronormative. I'm yeah. sure you found that yourself. Mm-hmm. And recently we did a podcast episode about why it's important to talk to your kids about sex with an educational workshop coach named uh, Dr. Heidi Croat. And she was fantastic. And we were talking about how the sex talk has changed mm-hmm. and how it now incorporates things like porn and consent and LGBTQ mm-hmm. and gender issues. Ideally. Yeah, yes, ideally. ideally. <laughs> and, and one of the things we talked about is that gender issues may be the biggest challenge and change for us as parents. And you wrote about how 20% of millennials now identify as LGBTQ and only about two thirds of Gen Z, which is our kids, say that they are exclusively heterosexual. And I think parents are really struggling with how to talk about this or even accept it. So what do you think parents need to know about this? I mean, this is a big societal change. Like, how do we introduce this in conversations? Well, you know, there was a lot that was fascinating about the gay and nonconforming boys that I spoke with. And I think, you know, we have to start normalizing. I I don't know. Do you guys watch Sex Education? I just, I I literally watched one minute last night. I started to watch it. I was going to watch it with my daughter, even though some people said not to, but, you know, I can watch it with her. And then she was like, nah, I want to watch something else. And so I was so close. close, Yeah. But I hear it's great. I think that they do actually a fantastic (laughs) job of integrating, especially in season two, ideas about what people who share the same genitals might be doing together and how that might work and demystifying it, normalizing it. Hmm. There's a whole set of how we need to talk to those kids specifically. But in the larger scope, if you're a parent of a cis hetero kid, you also have to be talking to them about this stuff or at least providing them with resources that will allow them to learn about it. Because if we don't, then those kids continue to be marginalized. And one of the things that I was finding with gay boys was that obviously there's so much more acceptance now. They come out younger. The boy who frames that chapter for me comes from a rural town in Tennessee. His parents are Republican. They have a picture of George Bush Sr., I think, on their fridge. And when he comes out, they are open-armed. You know, I mean, things have changed. And I also felt in talking to boys that a lot of that acceptance was about a kind of social queerness. So it was okay to be the gay best friend or the theater boy or the queer eye or whatever. But people were not talking to those kids about sex and about sexual practices and about relationships. And so they were still, and this was really alarming to me, um, a number of the guys that I talked to talked about when they were underage, lying about their age and going on Grindr and hooking up anonymously with guys who were much older. And sometimes people say to me, well, haven't, you know, gay guys always done that? I mean, first of all, maybe that doesn't make it okay. They didn't feel it was okay. I've got a 16-year-old daughter. I sure as heck wouldn't want her doing that. You know, they would say things to me like one of the boys was telling me about going off on a grinder hookup at a hotel. And he said, I don't really like to do that. I really like to go to the guy's houses. And I just said, excuse me, but at a hotel, somebody can hear you scream. And the guy had to put down a credit card and the maid will eventually come in the room at somebody's house. You could be chopped mm. up in little pieces, you know? Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. So nobody would know. And he just kind of went, oh, 
Oh my goodness. I never thought because he's a kid. You know, yeah. and that's dangerous. Yeah. I mean, among other things, it's dangerous, but it's also unfair. And it wasn't what they wanted. They wanted and deserve to be able to have the same kinds of experiences as their straight peers. They deserve to be able to have social situations and boyfriends and dates and whatever else, you know, and even the bad stuff. They deserve to be able to be in that context. And so thinking about not only talking to our kids who are queer about our expectations and about what a positive sexual engagement is for them and a positive relationship and connection and all of that, but also finding ways to create social situations that they can thrive into was super important. And the reason I'm glad we're talking about this to a community of parents is because I I think this is something that parents need to think about if they have a son who's gay. I mean, I think as a mom of daughters, this is something we've always talked about. I was thinking about, you know, how Fast Times at Ridgemont High opens with like Jennifer Jason Lee, who's supposed to be 14, losing her virginity to an older guy. Right. And that's how girls were always taught like that was kind of okay. It was like a little taboo but you were supposed to want to date somebody older. And I I don't know how many moms of boys are thinking that boys are doing that. Right. And also, I mean, honestly, that was an issue to a degree with straight boys who had felt traumatized by interactions they'd had with older women because we glamorized that. I mean, again, you know, you look at porn on Pornhub, which is, you know, where they're getting most of the porn the front page in the United States is full of stepmother porn, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so there's a lot of glamorizing of that older woman teaching the younger boy dynamic. That would be assault, first of all. Yes. And secondly, the boys that had experienced that were not saying, wow, that was cool. You know, they were sometimes struggling with what that meant too, and also feeling isolated in that experience in terms of being able to surface why it bothered them, why it upset them, why it felt potentially traumatizing to them. Well, as a site called Cool Mom Picks, which yeah. people often think is P-I-C-S, we get our share of MILF um, oh. porn spam. Yeah, yes, <laughs> we do. We're very familiar with that. Try having books called Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex. <laughs> God, we could have a whole other talk about Google search algorithm. Well, there's so much here, Peggy, uh, but let's just finish up with a few thoughts and some action points that parents can make. You know, you discovered in the book that boys, they do have a desire, right, for more expansive, a holistic version of masculinity. We know as parents that this is going to take a huge shift in media, what they're seeing, what they're consuming. But there are things we can do. It's not just the media. There are things that we can do as parents in our home that could help make this happen. And you talk a lot about this. You talk a lot about learning about consent, talking about emotional intimacy. What are some other things that parents can do, say, expose our kids to, our boys to, that will help this, help move it along? Well, you know, obviously it depends on the age of your child. And I don't at the end of the book give a script exactly because I can't do that, but I do give a template. And this was the first time I ever did this with a book. I, I normally try to take the reader into some situation classroom or program, you know, profile a person where things are going the way that I, you know, in my utopian vision of what things should be. But I felt like after writing about kids and sex for so many years that I really did have some ideas of the types of conversations, at least, that we ought to be having with them. And yes, you know, we do need to be talking to our kids about media. We do need to be talking to our kids about consent. And I talk very clearly about some of the ways we can do that. And, and there's always something going on in the news that allows us to have some of these conversations, like Kobe Bryant's death, you know, yeah. super tragic, super hard. And 
it brought up three different ideas, I think, that come up in the book that could be a lens into talking to your child. First of all, the outpouring of grief by adult men and emotion by adult men is mm. so unusual. And yes. so mm-hmm. talking about why aren't men allowed to have that? What happens when they do have it? What does it feel like? Why do we need to have these emotions? What emotions are guys allowed? You know, having that conversation through this incident is a good one. You could also have a conversation about assault and say, you know, when he settled with that woman out of court, he was forced to acknowledge responsibility. But the way he did it was to say, I thought it was consensual, but she, I guess, didn't, which is not quite an admission of guilt, Mm -hmm. which also is a really interesting way to talk about false assumptions and the ways that young men can be socialized to will themselves into a belief that what they're doing is not assault. And looking at the whole continuum of that with guys and talking about how they need to be aware of that and challenge that. And finally, it's another opportunity to talk about the way that race and ethnicity mediate all these conversations about consent. Because again, you know, he's an African-American guy. The survivor of his assault was a white woman. And African-American guys, particularly in college, are more likely to be brought up on assault charges, not because they assault more, but because whiteness protects other guys from those accusations in a different way and protects them from the consequences of those accusations. So thinking about that whole conversation and the ways that accusations of rape have been used as a tool of social control for men of color for hundreds of years, Mm -hmm. and actual rape has been used as a tool of social control of all women for all time and how those things can come into conflict and how we need to talk about that. So, you know, just right there, you've got three points of entry for a teenage boy who is thinking about the whole Kobe Bryant thing to have a range of small conversations about gender and sex. Wow. It's a lot. It's tough stuff. But, you know, there's one thing you wrote that I thought summed up so well what we can do as parents. And it's profound because it's so simple and it sounds so obvious. But what you said is promote the healthy and name the toxic. I just loved that because I think we all know to promote the healthy. We don't always know to call out the stuff that's bad. Right. Well, and that's what that little example did, right? It promotes the healthy men expressing themselves. It calls out the toxic, which is, you know, the racism and the false assumptions that men make about gender. And you can talk about all of those things and hold all of those things at once so that it's not, I think one of the problems in the conversation right now around those issues is that we tend to position boys as either being perpetrators or victims, you know, either they're perpetrators or they're victims of false accusations in some way. And the truth is so much in the middle. And so being able Mm -hmm. to sort of help our guys learn that and also, you know, talking about reciprocal pleasure, super important. Your son didn't know about female orgasm. Oops. You know, I know know he does. He knows an awful lot about about it now. <laughs> and if he if he was left to porn to find out about female orgasm, right. really distorted idea. Yes, not, that is very true. Not going to have the right information about that. Peggy, you're amazing. It's almost as if you're an expert who has a book that we should all be buying. <laughs> almost, huh? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> well, the book is called Boys and Sex, Young Men on Hookups, Love, Porn, Consent, and Navigating the New Masculinity. As you can hear, it is rich with information that yes. everyone should be reading, whether you have girls or or boys, or neither yet. Tell us where we can find it, where we can find you, where we can get more information. Oh, 
Well, the book better be at your local independent bookstore or wherever books are sold on IndieBound and Barnes and Noble and Amazon, wherever you find books, it should be there. It's a bestseller, so it's supposed to be in the bookstores. I, I say that only because of the title. I think it doesn't actually always make it into bookstores. And you can find me at PeggyOrnstein.com. And I also have a lot of resources on my website for having all these conversations with your kids that are across age, across gender, across sexual identity, all these topics that we've been discussing. So while I can't give you exactly the script, I've given you the resources so you can create it. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And now it's time for Cool Picks of the Week. Cool Picks of the Week. Peggy, you are our guest. You get to go first. So mine, which I alluded to earlier, is the Netflix show Sex Education. It is so great. I have a few quibbles, but it's so great. Every parent should watch it. And if you have an older teen, it's a great jumping off point for conversation. Probably they will want to watch it in their own room away from you, but then you can talk about it. Okay, now I definitely <laughs> have to watch more than the first minute. Yeah, me that too. That solidifies it. <laughs> I have it on my list. Yeah, you're, you're the third person who recommended it to me this week. And I feel like when I hear about something three times in a week, it's like a must watch. Yeah. Yes. How about you, Kristen? Well, you know what? I am doing one that's kind of a little bit of a sex education. Literally, it's omgyes.com. Have you heard of this site? I love omgyes. Oh my gosh. It is so good. So OMG Yes is a service that provides education, videos, amazingly well done content that is all about female pleasure. And it is, I don't want to say tasteful because it doesn't need to be tasteful. It can be sexy, but it is so rich in information. And I had bought the first season. It's not a subscription. So you can buy the first season or now they have a second season. It is affordable. It's $49. You get a ton of information. And I had bought it like a year and a half ago and kind of forgot about it. I actually forwarded it to my teenage daughter. I was like, you need to watch this. So then I was like, you know what? I'm kind of bored. I'm going to watch this. And I am so impressed. It is fantastic. They did tons of research. They spoke to so many women to get information about what was actually happening, what women were actually experiencing, showing you all kinds of cool techniques. They have videos that are I would say they're not super sexy and they're not clinical. They kind of ride right in between women of of color, different ages, showing you these kinds of different techniques. And the second season is awesome as well. So I highly recommend this. It's omgyes.com. Okay, well, mine, I keep feeling like I should switch it, but nope, I'm going to stick with it. This goes in a totally different direction um, because we know that representation matters and we want everyone to feel good about who they are growing up. I want to give a shout out to the new Barbies. So I'm sorry, Mattel, for putting you in a big, heavy sex talk <laughs> episode. But I know, uh, Peggy, that like feminist moms have kind of a love-hate relationship with Barbie. But I think their new figures are amazing. Mm-hmm. They just introduced one with Vitiligo. Really? Which I think is incredible. Yes. Yep, yes. They did. And I want to read you the review, one of the reviews on the site. She said, I bought Vitiligo. Whoever thought you'd hear Vitiligo Barbie, right? And she said, I bought Vitiligo Barbie. The moment I saw her in stores, a doll with the same condition as me, I nearly cried. I sent pictures to all of my friends exclaiming how happy I was to be able to find such a perfect Barbie. Her name is Marie now, and I will cherish her forever. Another person wrote, my four-year-old son 
loves the doll. We have a close friend who has vitiligo, and it is very nice to have a toy that looks just like her. So I want to give a shout out to Barbie also for just broadening their dolls, their body types. They have a new one that's a man with long hair. They have more men that don't look as heteronormative as Ken traditionally did. And I think they're doing a good job. They have non-binary Barbies. Yes, they do. They were, in fact, one of our cool picks of the year for 2019. So here's to Mattel and Barbie for keeping up with the times and with our kids. Yeah. Well, that's it. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawned. And huge thanks, as always, to our fabulous engineer, John Bowen. There are a few things that you can do to help spread the word and support Spawned. You can subscribe to our podcast, download or save our episodes, leave us a five-star review. And honestly, the best thing you can do is just tell a friend or family member about our podcast. It costs you nothing and earns you everything. That's how I like to think of it. And hey, if you're a listener, then you are part of our Spawned podcast community already, but you may not be part of our Spawned podcast community of listeners on Facebook. To make it official, join us there. You can find our group from a link on our podcast page or just by searching Spawned podcast community on Facebook. It's that simple. We'd love to have you join us and chat about anything we talked about here today. This is a conversation that should lead to a lot of good questions and discussions. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening to Spawned. This is Kristen. And this is Liz. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.